From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome to a new Dialogues in Dermatology special series on augmented intelligence in dermatology. Join me, Dr. Adea Adamson, and Dr. Jules Lipoff as we interview experts on topics ranging from augmented intelligence regulation and standards, education for dermatologists and patients, and clinical impact on the field. Welcome to this episode of Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Adea Adamson, and I'm an assistant professor in the Division of Dermatology at the University of Texas at Austin. And today, I have two very illustrious guests. First, I have Dr. Jenna Lester, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. And she's joined here today by Rob Novoa, who's a clinical associate professor of pathology and dermatology at Stanford. And we have convened these guests today to talk all things AUI, or augmented intelligence, and how that has played out in dermatology and how they think maybe it might play out in the future. But before we start today, I would first want to clarify the roles that uh, each has at their institution and how they got into thinking about artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence. Um, but I think I can say this, um, it's hard to escape nowadays between chat GPT, AI is, is everywhere. But Dr. Lester, would you mind starting us off by telling us how you got into uh, this space? Thank you so much. Um, I actually was inspired by something that you wrote, Dr. Adamson, that talked about how we will continue to encode bias in algorithms that we write if we're not aware and actively trying to root that out of what we're doing. Because, you know, like anything new, you can think of any trend in medicine that's billed as being the solve all for everything, vitamin D, vitamin E, like whatever it is, there's usually this reckoning moment where we really whittle down to say, like, what actually can this thing do? And I think there's a lot of excitement around AUI or augmented intelligence, but we have to be real about the dangers involved as well. And so being someone who is interested in equity and trying to push that forward, that viewpoint, I think it was, that you wrote several years ago was very illuminating to me and made me more interested in trying to figure out how we could positively contribute in this space. Well, I appreciate uh, you reading that viewpoint and heartened at the effect that it's had on you. But I think what you said is, is well said, that anytime we introduce a new technology, a new drug, new procedure, often there might be issues related to equity, access, et cetera. And now, Dr. Novoa, you're a, you're a dermatopathologist. To what angle did you come at artificial intelligence or AUI? Sure. So uh, way back in 2014, I came across an article in the New York Times talking about how researchers at Stanford have been able to create an AI algorithm that could classify dog breeds as well as humans could. And when I saw that, it was my kind of eureka moment where I said, wow, if it can do this for dog breeds, then maybe it can do this for skin cancer. And I was just lucky to be at the right place at the right time. And I started reaching out to colleagues and to researchers. And as advice for future young colleagues, when trying to do interdisciplinary stuff, with other people who might not know you, sometimes you have to knock on the door more than once. So I reached out a few times and finally found some collaborators and we went forward and built an algorithm that was 
capable of classifying skin lesions and we're able to publish it uh, a few years later. So that was kind of my angle, not really directly related to pathology at that time. It was really kind of in reading and trying to just being curious about things that I came across the exciting work before I had kind of gotten into the mainstream. Yeah, and I think you're being a little understated here, Dr. Novo. That was a a landmark publication, uh, the Esteva and all in, in Nature, I think, is the one that you're referencing, where it showed that an algorithm was as good or just about as good at diagnosing pigmented lesion as board-certified dermatologists. And I guess this experience was kind of formative for you in thinking about this emerging technology. Do you see this type of technology playing a role in the clinic uh, I know that that study that you were a part of in Nature was in, I, I believe, 2017. So, you know, we're, you know, six years on. Um, has there been a a push to try to see if we could use this in the clinic? Yeah, that's a great question. And this is, uh, in different places, it has kind of reached uh, different levels of penetration. In the United States, there's not yet an FDA-approved device that is being used to classify pigmented uh, lesions. Uh, but I believe in the next few years, in the next two years, we're likely to start seeing some of these algorithms come before the FDA. Then there are active clinical trials being performed by companies that are looking at uh, using these algorithms, typically for dermoscopy, in the clinic uh, to assist dermatologists. And there have been a number of papers that have come out since 2017 that have shown the, the efficacy and also some of the limitations of these algorithms. So this is something that we haven't quite seen it break into clinical practice yet, but I believe in the next few years it will. Uh, radiology, as a counterexample, has actually had a number of different algorithms that have been approved by the FDA for use. So maybe it's only a matter of time before uh, this happens in dermatology. Well, I think it's one of those things where we have to remember that our images are in, in some ways more complex than radiology images. Radiology has the benefit of having that DICOM standard. The images are much more standardized. They're de-identified typically. And the, the technology that's used to kind of take in the images is pretty standardized. With clinical images, you're typically taking it on a mobile phone that's changing from year to year. You can have clinical or dermoscopic images. There's not standardization as far as the lighting or as far as the distance even for clinical images. Dermoscopy is a little more standardized, and so that's why I expect it to be seen there. Um, but Dr. Lester has actually had some exciting uh, articles about uh, best practices for photography and some of the practices that should be done in order to take the best pictures possible. And I think that these are some of the necessary things to think through when we're trying to implement this on a broader scale. So, Dr. Lester, you run a skin of color clinic in San Francisco. Do you see any challenges or opportunities for uh, AI development within your patient population? There has been more of a concerted effort at identifying you know, sources of bias related to AUI. Has there been any headway in the last few years in trying to figure out ways in which AUI perhaps could be used to lessen bias or perhaps designing in a way that it's less biased? I think the headway that we've made is recognizing that this potentially could be rife with bias. That's what I've seen. I tend to look at this 
maybe in a glass half empty type of way, just because the stakes are very high. And I think that that is a necessary framing. And I think there's opportunity in any space as long as it's used in the right way. But what I see as a problem is that we develop these technologies and though there's nothing FDA approved, we know that there are commercially available products like in the Google Play Store, in the iTunes Store that one can buy that is making claims about what it can do for diagnosing skin lesions. And that's a danger in and of itself. But then thinking about how these are developed and who's included and excluded. And the problem that I see is that equity is tends to be a secondary thought as opposed to it being a part and parcel to the development of the technology. It's something that's often reverse engineered for after someone calls out a company and says, you know, you don't have enough diversity in your data sets that you were using to teach your algorithm. So I think that's a really huge issue. I'm glad that more people and companies are starting to recognize this, but I still do think it's a problem that it's an afterthought. One area that I believe is sort of our next frontier, Dr. Navoa just mentioned about in radiology, the data that they're using tends to be de-identified. And in dermatology, we don't have that same luxury standard or whatever. The photos that we're using are of real life people. And how do we talk about privacy around that? And what does de-identified mean? There's not necessarily a uniform definition that every one uses. And as we start to think about diversifying image sets, does that mean we're going to be using more photos? Uh, we're trying to source more photos of people with black and brown skin to sort of fill these data sets. And does that mean we might be sort of unintentionally layering harm on groups of people who've already been impacted by structural racism, et cetera? So these are the things I'm thinking about next, mainly how do we discuss privacy around development of these technologies? So Dr. Novoa, you mind adding on to that? Is privacy a huge issue? I mean, these algorithms, they get better based on how much data they can consume. And sometimes there's just not enough data out there to consume, so they need to be sourced. And, you know, how do we do that sourcing? Who owns those data sets? Like Dr. Lester said, how is privacy managed? Do you have any thoughts related to that in dermatology? Sure. So I want to take a moment to highlight some of the great work done by my colleagues here and by a group uh, by Roxana Donishu and Albert Chu, who produced a diverse data set just last year. And so this was a paper highlighting the skin lesions in patients with type 5 and 6 skin and showing that a lot of the algorithms that are publicly available were underperforming and that dermatologists actually often underperformed with uh, classification of lesions in Fitzpatrick 5 and 6 skin, but that you could actually improve performance by fine-tuning on those same algorithms. So just as kind of a, a quick point that these are things that are important, that we can improve the performance through inclusion of more diverse skin types. As another point, as far as privacy is concerned, it is a very laborious task to go through and make sure that none of these images is identifiable. This is something that, you know, for our publicly released data set, you know, dermatologists didn't go through and eliminate any image that could be, be remotely considered identifiable. Uh, perhaps there's the potential for AI to improve that if it can detect the presence of faces or the presence of body art or body modification that would be considered identifiable. I think that that would be a potential tool where it could perhaps speed up the process, not eliminate the need for humans to look at it, but it could speed it up. And then I think the question of ownership is a fascinating one because 
the these data are going to be used for very lucrative algorithms that are, are going to be a source of profit for companies and the institutions that create them. But the data come from patients and then also from the physicians and providers who are, you know, in the case of a pathology, for example, making that diagnosis and labeling the image with the, the features that are, are relevant. Uh, and this is currently an area where we don't really we struggle with attribution. We struggle with these questions of ownership. They haven't been yet defined. And, you know, it, the default status would be that the, the groups with power and the groups with voice are going to be the ones that have ownership over these data unless uh, steps are taken to prevent that. Even if you think beyond like financial remuneration for each photo, we often associate money with power. The algorithm itself is really a representative of power. And if we're making diagnoses or decisions, uh, medical decisions about what someone is eligible for or not with an algorithm, we as the institution, whoever holds the algorithm has the power. The patient doesn't really have the power to respond to that and say, well, actually in my algorithm, it says my diagnosis is X and I think I should be getting Y. Like I, I think even thinking more deeply than, than who we should attribute the work to and who should get the money from that, there's a really heavy imbalance when we are processing all this data and making decisions that have impacts on people's lives as a result of that. And there's no way that those people can then shift that balance and take back any of that power. I mean, I think that's a great point. If you look at things like determining who gets released on bail, a lot of these decisions are being determined in part using these private opaque machine learning algorithms. And that is just a question just as important as that of some of the diagnoses that we're making, these are also questions of life and death, of, of freedom or incarceration that are being determined by opaque algorithms. So I think that these are active areas that still need to have further law around them determined. So there has been a lot of chatter about chat GPT and these language you know models is there an application for these in dermatology that you can potentially foresee it's, it's very easy to understand how image-based algorithm development could potentially be disruptive is there everywhere at chat gpt could potentially do the same in dermatology i think there are many different potential applications of this technology to begin with in a way with chat gpt you need both a lower bar in order to kind of use it than some other technologies, but also a higher bar in order to be able to verify its truthfulness and its accuracy. So it's kind of this double-edged sword where it produces prose that sounds very fluent, that sounds very accurate, but you can easily be fooled if you take everything at face value. I think great potential applications include the production, the the easing of things like producing uh, after-visit summaries, of, of producing patient handouts, of writing prior authorizations, for example. All, all of these kind of potential applications that can be fairly time-consuming, I think these things can all be uh, improved and sped up using something like ChatGPT. Can I also add, insurance yes. companies may also then use it to write rejections for is <laughs> a double-edged sword. If they even read the, the prior off to begin with, apparently. Right. Absolutely. No. So I think that all of these things are going to have second and third order effects that are difficult to predict. So, you know, the, the example that I have given before and that I gave at the AAD was that, 
AI will likely make us more efficient, you know, may make us more efficient as we see patients. We may be able to see more patients. They may be more complex. It may be that if we can see more patients, see each patient in a shorter period of time, that the RUC may decrease our reimbursement, you know, per RVU for the different visits. But in the end, for example, we're still seeing more patients, hopefully still delivering very good care or better care than what we're giving now. That would probably be a win on a whole for society if we could see patients more efficiently. But yes, there are going to be second and third order effects to this as time goes on. And maybe as you commented, perhaps they'll start writing clinic notes, <laughs> which wouldn't be such a bad thing, or at least pre-populating them based on previous notes, based on you know lab values, et cetera. That would be a win. That would be a huge win. The lack of AI inclusion in our electronic medical record is a shame. And that will be all I say on that topic. You guys are in Northern California where all the action happens. And it, if it hasn't happened there, you know, when is it going to happen out here in the Luddite parts of the country? I think it speaks to the market structure within the world of electronic medical records. I'll say that. So I want to ask both of you to kind of make a, a prediction here. When do you think AI and direct medical care is going to happen? Is this like a two to three year thing? Is it like more of a middle term, five to 10? Are we talking, you know, maybe more like 20? I was going to ask you to clarify what you mean when you say direct. That as a clinician, you are going to use something that is powered by AUI to make a clinical decision. So, you know, I will just take a quick step back and mention that anytime you use Google to search for something to kind of improve your diagnosis, to check your sources, you are already using AI. A lot of Google search is powered by machine learning. So on one level, some of the best diagnoses I have made have been performed at least in part using Dr. Google. As far as when it will be seen in a clinical practice, as far as using it to help interpret visual data, I would probably predict within the next two to three years, there will be something available um, that's going to be used that can, that will be available, whether or not what the uptake of it will be is not yet clear, how much it'll can, it'll augment the ability of top dermatologists, you know, people who or pigmented lesion experts like you a day. I don't know when that will be, but I think something that will improve the performance of primary care providers and folks like that, I think will come out soon. And then as far as when it'll be included in things like EMR, I mean, who knows? Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. We could probably go on for another 20 to 30 minutes, but I'd like to thank both you, Dr. Lester and Dr. Novoa for this wonderful conversation. This has been the AAD's Dialogue in Dermatology. We'll catch you on the uh, next episode of this podcast. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to Dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.